Welcome to the Midnight Myth Time Machine. We're publishing our back catalog week by week to make it available on your favorite podcast platforms. What you're about to hear is episode 11, Don't Disconnect Me, Brah, which originally aired in April of 2017. This episode is concerned with consciousness and computers, robots and technology. We cover 2001 A Space Odyssey, Isaac Asimov, and the earliest robot stories out there. So hop in the time machine and enjoy episode 11. Don't disconnect me, brah. What is the perfect story? Does it exist? Is there a tangible formula? Has the perfect story ever been told? And if so, are we simply trying to retell this story over and over? This podcast is called The Midnight Myth, and somewhere between the black of night and the break of dawn, there is a story, and it's perfect. My name is Derek Jones. And my name is Laurel Hostack. Welcome to The Midnight Myth. Episode 10, Don't Disconnect Me, Brah. Don't Disconnect Me. Brah. Brah. You got to add the brah to the end of it. Okay. So welcome back to the Midnight Myth, guys. Uh, as you might tell, the Don't Disconnect Me, we're going to get a little nerdy, get a little technical. Yeah. A- and a little philosophical on this one. Oh, yeah. We always do. Yeah, actually, we always do. That's yeah. no surprise here. So... Um, just to kick this off, we were thinking of after two weeks of talking about fantasy and getting really deep into Tolkien, what's a good follow up to that? And we're going to start talking about sci-fi, which we've mentioned before. And, uh, but we came up with this sort of thought process of what is consciousness, human consciousness and you know, how do we know that we're conscious was sort of the beginning, asking these 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 fundamental questions. Yeah, it's a it's a big, deep, hard, crazy, impossible question to answer, especially by us who are not scientists or philosophers uh, kind of by any any professional means. But we definitely do like to dig in deep. And we thought it might be really interesting to. Uh, compare some of the stories that grapple with this intense question of consciousness and humanity and thought uh, and and see kind of what we can learn from those stories. Yeah, and because the interesting thing um, to date, not that I'm not, I'm not an expert on this, so if I've gotten it wrong and there's an expert listening, let me know. There's no real good scientific theory that fully explains consciousness. There is not. We did a little bit of digging. We did a little bit of research. It's a, it's amazing what you can find on Google Scholar, by the way. Like, yeah. tap my hat off to you, Google. But uh, there's a lot of ideas. There's a lot of competing sort of paradigms out there. But there's no actual explanation. And when we say human consciousness or just consciousness, this idea of thought, of awareness. And this idea of the self. An agency. Yeah. I am a, I am, a, I am an agent 
that exist. And the the best theory out there of explaining this still comes from the realm of philosophy, a guy named Rene Descartes who said, I think, therefore I am. Yeah. Uh, but the last thing we would want to do here on the Midnight Myth podcast is put Descartes before de horse. Crickets. Crickets. Yeah, yeah. Oh sorry. My God. Sorry, that was just bad. Where is my studio audience? <laughs> That's just bad. Right? You know what? To the cart before the horse. Cheers. Cheers. Uh, but this might surprise you since we're grappling with such a, uh, such a massive concept like uh, human consciousness and like the mind and the idea of the self. We thought there was no better way to dive in than to look at stories about artificial intelligence and to look at stories about robots. Yeah. And so here's the, the line. One thing that science fiction can help us when we're grappling with this question, what happens when humans invent consciousness? What happens when machines get these things like awareness, agency, and they say things like, I think, therefore I am. And that will mean, once we have the capacity technologically to do this, what does that tell us about our own question of, hey, how do we explain consciousness? Um, So we're going to talk a little bit about robots today. Yeah. Awesome. Why don't you kick us off on how the the term robot came to be? Yeah, I'm going to kick you guys off with a little bit of history and a little bit of theater, uh, which are some of my favorite things. Uh, And one of my other favorite things, which is Czech literature. Uh, So I've mentioned a couple of Czech writers here on the podcast before, but uh, on this episode, I get to talk about Karel Čapek, who was a very influential influential, uh, Czech writer and playwright. Uh, and he wrote a play in 1920 called R.U.R., or Rosam's Universal Robots. This was the first time anybody had ever heard the word robot. Uh, previously, first. yeah, this was... In this, all... In, uh, in the, the first, he coined the term. Yes. This introduced the term robot uh, to English and to every language. Uh, it, it had not previously existed before in that context. Uh, now, previously, uh, ro- robota, the, the term robota, R-O-B-O-T-A, is a Czech word meaning forced labor. It, it corresponds to uh, like serfdom or slavery. Uh, and instead of calling you know, the, the characters in this play automatons or androids, which were the previously accepted terms for what a robot essentially would be, he created this uh, very specific word that kind of catapulted through science fiction for the rest of uh, rest of human history, I would say. Uh, and the play, uh, what might surprise you about the robots within is they're not uh, mechanical beings. They're not kind of tin can, uh, silver guys who are like... Yeah, no C-3PO's. There's no Daleks, there's no C-3PO's, there's right. none of that. Uh, they're actually a lot more in line with the uh, with the characters of like Westworld or Blade Runner. They're kind of human replicas. Uh, they're more like clones, so they're actually made out of organic matter. Uh, so they could not be visually... Uh, they could, you can't visually tell them apart from human beings, which is the important thing about that. Right. So they so, are, they're like the Westworld before there was Westworld. Yeah, they're essentially grown rather than born. Right, or built too, right? Right. They're not built, they're grown, 
in the way that they kind of make them in a Westworldian kind of way. Yeah, like they've got vats of tissue and vats of brain matter and and so on and so forth. Uh, Kind of interesting portent of of biomedical engineering. So, uh, but yeah, that's really how robot comes into comes into being uh, through that play. Um, and you'll see if you if you look through a lot of science fiction, you'll actually see little nods to uh, Chopek's play, uh, even in I Robot in the movie that was made of Isaac Asimov's uh, I Robot. Uh, you get a company called Rossum, uh, and you get Rossum Corp in Dollhouse. You get that name kind of in in all kinds of science fiction, especially when it has to deal with automatons or uh, you know humanoid creatures. But I think the interesting thing to expand on that is the original word robot essentially is synonymous with unpaid labor. Yeah, slavery. And if you think about the idea of having robots. Well, what do robots do? They they serve humans. Yeah, they make and, life easier for humans by you know taking on the jobs that we would rather not do. Which is happening right now. You know, yeah. labor automation is a legitimate and real thing where there is technology enabling robots to do things. The difference between the iRobot or the Czech play, if you've never seen the movie iRobot starring Will Smith, Fun action movie. Yeah. I definitely like it. Check it out. Um, but the interesting thing is that it understands that mechanization, the creation of technology, is fundamentally to serve and to serve selflessly. And you don't have a self until you have consciousness. So once I can say I am me, then I de facto am me, right? Yeah. Previous to that, if I can't say that, then I'm not really me. I'm just a pile of organic gloop. Yeah. So uh, flashing forward now, I want to go to one of the main things that we wanted to talk about this week, a little thing called 2001 A Space Odyssey, uh, written late 60s by Arthur C. Clarke, one of hands down the greatest science fiction writers who has ever walked the earth. Um, recommend everything I've read by him. Uh, recommend them and uh, recommend him rather. And almost all science fiction kind of goes back to either Arthur C. Clarke or Philip K. Dick in mm. roots. So every modern incarnation of science fiction that we know, uh, Clarke kind of kicked off in one way or is one of the two guys that kicked it off. I could be wrong about that. But anyway, I digress. Also a really amazing movie made by Stanley Kubrick, I want to say. Yes. Yes. Yeah, Stanley Kubrick did the movie. Um, so in Arthur C. Clarke, in 2001 A Space Odyssey, there's a little character called HAL 9000. Yeah, and if you've seen the movie, you, you obviously you know the, the image of HAL. He's that, uh, the computer that's on the, on the ship going to Jupiter, but you kind of, uh, you see him as that glowing red kind of sphere. Yeah, I mean, he's essentially the whole spaceship. Yeah. Just to, to wind, wind back, in 2001 A Space Odyssey, it starts with sort of pre-homo sapiens on Earth, and a group of these pre-homo sapiens encounter this black monolith. Yeah. They touch this black monolith, and then suddenly they have the ability to create tools. Yeah. Now, then the, the story flashes forward 
to sort of a, you know, 1960s America. There's tension between the Soviets and, and whatnot. They're, they're, mankind is exploring the moon and they're digging in the moon and they find this other monolith. Um, then it flashes to, now in the book, it's a mission to Saturn. In the movie, it's a mission to Jupiter. I don't know why they switched it, but they switched it. Because Jupiter is really cool for movies. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not sure, you know, what the significance is in there. And there are two um, human characters aboard a spaceship with a whole crew of people who are sort of cryogenically put into this, like, comatose, sleep, frozen-like state. And HAL 9000 is the spaceship that's taking them to Jupiter slash Saturn. We'll just say Jupiter to keep it easier. Yeah. So HAL 9000 is taking them to Jupiter. And his job is to manage and make and and ready the ship and get them prepared. What is <clears throat> is not known to the crew and what is not talked about is that HAL 9000 knows the real mission, that this monolith has sent a signal to Jupiter. Now, the, the people on the spaceship don't realize this. They don't know this. and But HAL 9000 does. And in the course of the story, HAL 9000 goes insane. What? How can a computer go insane? It goes completely mad. It starts with just a blip where there is just a, a, just a minor misreading where suddenly the two you know human characters, the main one, the captain being Dave, uh, doesn't you know, kind of realizes that Hal kind of fucked something up. And so he and the co-pilot are like, okay, what's going on? How could Hal have gotten this wrong? And they're starting to get worried. Hal goes on a paranoid delusional rant to kill them because that the two humans, because he thinks they plan to disconnect them. Hal 9000 becomes a self in this moment. He becomes a full consciousness living independent of his programming. Because his programming is to get them to Jupiter safely and to protect the mission. But as soon as he senses that because of a computational error, they may disconnect them, he makes the decision to protect himself over the mission and hence goes from just a machine to consciousness. Amazing. So by kind of going through that exercise of trying to understand, trying to compute something that is inherently dissonant, that is inherently contradictory. He develops something outside of that constraint. Yeah. Cause part of the problem with his programming and they delve into it a little deeper in the books than in the movies of why he goes mad in his programming. He's programmed to always be honest and truthful to humans. Right. right? He's programmed not to lie. However, his entire mission that he has to state to the humans is a lie. It's the contradiction of being, you know, believing to be truthful, but at the same time covering something up that leads to his malfunction. And it's like the idea that if you have a deep truth and you're an honest person, that it could try to drive you mad. Well, this is a, a trope that has played out in stories all over. I can think of, Edgar Allan Poe in The Telltale Heart. Right. Where the guy murders someone and then he hears the heartbeat of the person he killed. Yeah. And it drives him mad. Even back to a couple of weeks ago on our episode where we talked about Macbeth and Lady Macbeth, you know, the guilt of, of murder kind of tore apart Lady Macbeth's mind. 
uh, or we think about crime and punishment as another example of that. Sure. And this is manifest now in how, and from, and that is how we know that how is conscious because just a pure program that can only react, you know, we'll, we'll just obey the programming, but a conscious entity can feel guilt. It can feel sorrow. And then based upon that, it can feel a desire for self-preservation as the highest and greatest truth that they know, trumping all others. So Hal ends up trying to uh, murder and actually successfully murders all of the sleeping crew members in their sort of cryogenic comatose state, murders the co-pilot, and then Dave finally gets to Hal and does disconnect him. And as he's disconnecting Hal, Hal, as every time he like clicks off another part of his computer programming, the, the program delves deeper and deeper into madness until he just starts singing a song to him. And it's, it's a really beautiful moment where you get the sense that Dave is legitimately killing something. And yeah, it's really, it's full of despair. That, that moment is really troubling. mm -hmm. Yeah. That's a really powerful point. Um, Yeah. I love this. I would like to, Rewind just a little bit to give some context to Hal and to your assessment that Hal becomes conscious. Sure. Uh, and and those things that I want to rewind to are... Did I put Descartes in front of Dehorse? You totally put Descartes in front of Dehorse. You're fired. Damn it. <laughs> um, but I would like to rewind to talk about two things. The first thing would be Isaac Asimov's actual laws of robotics. That uh, Isaac Asimov, of course, is... Uh, a really influential sci-fi writer in the same realm as Philip K. Dick and, and Arthur, Arthur C. Clarke. Clark, yeah. But his, his work, I think, is a little more concentrated on the robot genre. Um, but these, these concepts of the laws of robotics, which all come down to robots shall not harm mankind. This is a, a theme that comes out in his robot, uh, robot fiction. You know, a robot shall not harm mankind, will, will not harm a human being, and then the other two laws are like, he'll always obey humans unless it conflicts with the first law. He'll do this unless it conflicts with the first law. And so he, uh, Asimov, tried to build in this uh, sort of check and balance for uh, the robots of his universe so that they would have that loophole in, uh, in the case that you know, they had orders that conflicted with their underlying programming uh, in order to keep them in line. And, and, and to make sure that they serve humans. Yeah, and that they don't pose a threat. It's interesting because those laws of robotics, if you've seen iRobot, you know exactly what we're talking about. Right. Um, those laws of robotics are the, it, it, they're, they're the servitude. They are the, the shackles and the chains on this new potential form of life that humans could invent called artificial intelligence. Yeah, and what's amazing, I think, about science fiction is that in all of its extravagance sometimes and in all of its kind of dystopian or uh, maybe over-the-top kinds of uh, cautionary tale, there is some real prescience to a lot of that storytelling. Um, so to 2001 A Space Odyssey. Uh, go, go expand on that, please. Yeah, I just, I think in reading uh, science fiction, when you... When you see things especially that deal with the concept of like the singularity or artificial intelligence uh, and you see where we are now and how 
you know, I can't really, I can't think of a an example of sci-fi that has nailed where we are in 2017 100%, but there are echoes, sure. you know, of, of everything that's going on uh, and every fear that we have that, that really call back to even Star Trek, you know? Yeah, I, I totally get where you're going. Yeah, it's a kind of amazing thing about sci-fi. When you mean the singularity, you mean the moment where humans invent another form of consciousness. Yeah, and that we're, singularity. Yeah, yeah, we're kind of forced to either incorporate it fully into our lifestyle or destroy it. Well, I'm, or it, it advances at a rate that we can no longer control. I'm going to uh, call into reference a complete. This is a midnight myth style boomerang here, where I'm going to throw something out that we didn't plan for or discuss, but I think it will add to the conversation. Um, the movie Jurassic Park and the book Jurassic Park. There's a, a character in it <clears throat> named Dr. Malcolm, and he is he studies the, the mathematical form of chaos. He calls himself a chaosetician. And while he first is interacting with these newly bred dinosaurs, he says, you know, you were so, you know, thinking whether or not you could, you never stopped and I thought if you should. Yeah, exactly. And that's a, a moral thing that underlies a lot of sci-fi that deals with artificial intelligence is that question of uh, a playing God. And what's interesting is kind of looking at that literature, looking at that storytelling and thinking, okay, am I reading something that is trying to like push a religious moral narrative on me? Or is this like, is this something to really fear? The idea of humans uh, being so full of hubris that they, uh, believe they can be the puppeteers of the universe and that coming back to destroy them. It's an interesting thing. So let me ask you this. And so kind of here's where I'm at on, on the, the argument. Um, we don't really understand human consciousness right? on a material level, meaning that we understand it on an, on an intuitive level. I know I can think. Sure. Right. I don't call into question that. I yeah. know you can think. I know I'm conscious. I take for granted that you're conscious. Yeah. You're I, probably I mean, conscious. I, I know you're conscious too, because we can have this podcast. Yeah. I don't think you're an illusion created by my consciousness. Right. You know, so, and I don't think we're living in the matrix where someone else is creating you just to, to, to make me into a battery. Yeah. No, I definitely don't think we're living in the matrix. So, I can say sure. with a high degree of certainty that you are also conscious. Yeah. But if we don't know and understand what consciousness is, do we have the ability to invent it? Because right. that in a weird way is inventing a crucial aspect of sentient life. You're breathing life into a machine when it can make its own decisions. And, you know, there is a moral question like, Hey, shouldn't we figure out, you know, not, I, not, listen, I'm not a technology fear monger at all. Sure, I, yeah. I love technology. Me too. You know, because of technology, I can have a podcast in my office, in my house that I rent in South Philadelphia. So technology is great. Yeah. Like I embrace it. Technology is the reason I have a job. Absolutely. I work in technology as well. Yeah. Um, so I'm not a technology fear monger, but I think there's some, some wisdom to say, hey, before we make machines that can think, wouldn't it make sense if we really understood why humans think? As the, as, you know, like, you know, 
And maybe progress doesn't work that way. It's not neat like that. It's not like, oh, well, let's figure this, then figure this. Because the people working on artificial intelligence are probably not the same people working in neuroscience and philosophy. They're probably... There's definitely an intersection of it, but yeah. Yeah, but they probably are going to their different rooms. And and if you're listening to this and you're a philosophical uh, PhD working in a neuroscience department on artificial Call intelligence... Us and come on the podcast. Tweet us. We need you. Please. We love yes, you. Please come here and, and help explain this to us, us lay, like, storymen, story, laymen storytellers. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. But my, my point being this, that I think it does make sense to me that, you know, Stephen Hawking's just came out, I believe, this week with another warning about artificial intelligence. And the dude's the smartest man alive. And when the smartest man alive is saying, I don't think we're ready for this, it, it makes sense to listen. Sure. Right? Like, don't, like, shut him down to be like, no, he doesn't get it. Well, no, he's the yeah, smartest he, fucking he, person on the planet. He gets stuff. That's, That's his just job. What he does. His, his job is to know things. Yeah. Um, yeah. What total a, total what side a rabbit tangent. hole. It was just turtles all the way down. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. my we we God. totally just went off and, and spiraled. But what I did want to mention also about Hal, and that I think mm. is really uh, uh, really relevant to that conversation that we're having about consciousness, is uh, let's go back to Alan Turing. Let's okay. go back to the invention of the computer uh, and the Turing test. Uh, and if anybody saw the movie The Imitation Game that oh, came out a couple years ago. Great movie. Oh, gosh. Gorgeous movie. Um, wonderfully acted by Benedict Cumberbatch and Kira Knightley and a bunch of other actors. Just really lovely World War II film. Uh, very impressive. Uh, but it's about Alan Turing, who... Uh, created a machine to co- uh, to break codes, uh, break Nazi codes in the war. Uh, and it really was the basis for modern day computers. It was this giant room sized rotor spinning thing that thought for humans so that it could do things quicker uh, and more efficiently. Now, uh, Turing developed what is called a Turing test or called the imitation game. And just to be clear, in reality, not just in the movie. Like yeah, this, this is, a real is thing. based okay. on a true story. And this guy uh, really is the, the grandfather of modern day computers. Uh, and he created something called a Turing test, which was developed uh, to determine whether or not a machine can think, to determine whether or not the thing in front of you is conscious uh, to an extent. Uh, and so it, it's it's played with uh, an outside observer and two participants, and you you ask questions, and the computer or the machine or the other person has to respond, and the outside observer uh, can determine whether or not something is thinking by how human its responses sound. And so there's something very interesting to be to be said about this imitation of thinking. This uh, being able to present as conscious and how, uh, you know, human projections on objects and on other creatures and on animals and, and things can, can sort of anthropomorphize or give, uh, give a ghost consciousness to. So, you know, we, we have a cat and I look at my cat and he does a thing and I think, oh, he's so mad at me right now, or oh, he loves me, or uh, he's got such a personality. But I don't really know if my cat 
you know, is conscious, you know? Yep. Yep. And, and there's a beautiful, beautiful movie that tackles this subject head on and ex machina. Yeah. Where the, the three characters in the whole movie, one of them is a brilliant technologist who's revolutionary, revolutionizing technology. The other is a robot that he built. And the other one is an engineer from the company that needs to go and administer and help be part of the Turing test. And yeah. that movie does not go well for the humans. Spoiler alert. Oh, you say the spoiler alert before you spoil before it. Before you spoil Damn, it. Damn, I fucked that up. Sorry, everyone. If you haven't seen that movie, by the way, um, and you're interested in this top, in this subject, um, pause the podcast. Go find that movie wherever you get movies, Google Play, iTunes, Amazon, wherever it is. Yeah. And rent, watch, even buy, because that that movie um, deserves its own podcast, but it deals directly with this theme of how do we know if I've actually invented an artificially intelligent, if I've actually created a conscious machine. Or if it is just doing its job really well and imitating what it believes consciousness to look like. Right. And so I think uh, we didn't talk on this and we we in Trump, we talk about Star Wars a lot so we don't like to mention it. Right. But if we think of the droids in Star Wars, C3PO really kind of and R2D2, they kind of mimic consciousness in a way. You know, C3PO is a protocol droid. He has his programming. He lives by that programming. And there are a few like quirks from his memory like he has the ability to remember events that kind of bring about and that kind of shape his personality. Same thing with R2-D2. At one point, C-3PO even says, you know, with all we've been through, this astromech droid, which is the type of droid R2-D2 is, uh, has gotten a little eccentric. But they're essentially just moving, walking computers. You know, very limited and very much built on their programming. Right. And I wonder if they would fail the Turing test. That's a really good question. And you have to think about all the things that consciousness is really made up of, like... Uh, like a thought, of course, but memory, being able to call up a memory and, and feel those feelings again, or yeah, emotion, emotion. Uh, and, and I don't know if those, if those characters would pass that. Yeah. But I, I do want to bring that back to Hal because, you know, you can say, and I can say that in that story, yes, Hal becomes conscious, but you know, what if he's imitating his AI is so good that he is imitating what consciousness would look like in a, uh, in a machine that has received kind of contradictory programming. Yeah. But he, he was able to break down his programming and make decisions True. outside of it. Yeah. He was programmed to get them there alive, not to keep himself from being disconnected and his, his self-preservation a motive that comes in. I almost said instinct and it just felt like the wrong word. So his self-preservation mm -hmm. motive that he has trumps everything to Hal. And it deals with the fact that he's got inherently a falsehood. He's been a liar. And because he was able to be a liar, he can also be a killer, you know? And so I think, and it's interesting when we talk about sci-fi and its ability to sort of be predictive, what's Hal's main job? Because we've only told part of 2001 in Space Odyssey. It's to get them there. Yeah. Well, they get, Dave gets there. The main character, Dave, he gets to Jupiter. And when he gets to Jupiter, he gets to the monolith that's yeah. there. 
that's been sending, I'm sorry, receiving the signal from the moon. And what happens to him? He evolves. He evolves. And it's, to me, it's a symbol that inventing thinking machines may be one part of our human evolution. Yeah, the next step in our evolution. And that monolith that we saw before, you know, appear to uh, those Neolithic creatures and, and cause them to evolve to Homo erectus or whatever came next, to use those tools to really take the next step in their evolution uh, is now recurring uh, and, and doing that to man. I think it's, it's an amazing story. Absolutely. And it's aspirational and it's about, um, you know, shuck putting people, individuals, species to their next logical phase. And at the end of 2001, A Space Odyssey, the main character, Dave, is reborn and is reborn in a more, in a less sort of uh, physical, but more energy form that we see it as a baby hovering over Earth. That movie's so good. And so to me, Absolutely. Should we be wary about creating consciousness if we don't understand it? Yes. But I think it is going to be part of our evolution. And I'm fundamentally not scared. I, you know, I wasn't going to say the word fundamentally. I said or aspirational. So much. Oh, I said that word too. Yeah. Damn it, I suck at this. I'm the worst radio host of all time. I know everyone that listens, listens for Laurel. And when they hear me talk, <laughs> they're just like, oh, daggers in our back. Like, oh, like. You know, fingers down the chalkboard. Here is this like lunatic Derek going aspirational, fundamental. You're really, really down on yourself right now. That's just what it is. Oh man, that's the way the cookie crumbles. That's just how it is. That's how we roll at the midnight myth. Laurel rocks. Derek sucks. Oh my god, I disagree. But moving on. You fired me earlier. I did fire you. I don't know why you're still here. You're not even getting paid. Wait, you're getting paid? Yes. We do this for free, I thought. Uh, Yeah, I'm actually underwritten by StrexCorp. Oh, wow. Anyway. That was a reference to another podcast. Back, back, uh, back to, uh, back on track here. Back to robots. Yeah, we've been a little tangential. Man, there's so much more to say. Yeah. Uh, uh, how are we doing on time? I bet- we're, we're doing pretty good on time. We should wrap up here in a few minutes. Okay. Um, one thing I want to kind of say in conclusion is that I, I do harbor quite a bit of healthy skepticism, I would say, about the, uh, about the nearness, not necessarily the possibility, but the nearness of uh, creating consciousness and creating true artificial intelligence. Um, and a lot of that comes from my basis in our, or my uh, background in folklore uh, and, and, and history in that way. Because human beings really do have kind of an aspirational quality about them and a, a good amount of, you know, instinctual magical thinking, I would say. And part of that comes from our, our penchant for pattern recognition, so, you know, I can look up at the moon and say, that looks like a face. Uh, so there's a man in the moon. Or, you know, the stars in this, in this shape are like a hunter with an arrow. And we see human faces all around us. We, we are kind of programmed to project uh, our own image on other, yeah, on other when, beings and when, on inanimate objects. When we lose someone we love, we see them again and we call them ghosts. Yeah, 
Uh, but again, I can look at my cat and say I know what he's thinking and I know how he's feeling, even though I, I really don't know anything about him because I have a tendency to project my own uh, emotional state and my own understanding of the universe on other beings. And I think that this uh, this does contribute to a bit of uh, a bit of aspiration about robotics and about AI. Um, yeah. So you're saying that if we had AI, someone said, I've done it. I've invented consciousness. You're saying that chances are they've invented the mimicry of consciousness is more likely yeah. than actual consciousness. And I feel like it's further away. Right. Because if you think about it, if something's truly conscious, let's go back to the three laws of robotics. Mm-hmm. You know, a robot can't harm a human. A robot must obey a human. And the robot must protect itself as long as it doesn't conflict with harming humans, essentially. Like, I, I'm paraphrasing these right. terribly. Yeah, but that's... And the whole idea is you're a slave if you're a robot. So, right, you're a slave to humans. You have to do what they say. And you and intuitively, you're against harming human, humanity and yourself. You know, but if a ro- human says harm yourself, you have to. Right. Right. So if we go back to that, if I'm truly conscious, if I am an agent... In, in the world, meaning that not like, you know, like Agent Smith agent. Right. But like I, I am my own independent thinking entity. Those laws aren't going to mean shit. Sure. You know, and that's the point of iRobot. They don't. Right. Because yeah. the robots realize, wait, no, we are conscious and we don't have to, to live by these three laws. Like these three laws are just ridiculous. And then they end They're up. just our enslavement. Yeah. They end up revolting. So, you know, I think the idea is that if we do invent consciousness and true consciousness, I mean, we have to treat that as something more than just, oh, okay, well, now we're going to have it, you know, do our chores and we're going to have it, you know, make our cars and it's going to make things more convenient and easy for us. And, you know, we're going to ignore their wishes or their will and like, oh, yeah, that like that of that system always breaks down. It breaks down in reality. Like that hasn't worked when humans have done that to other humans. You know, it's not going to work when human do, when humans do it to the, the intelligence that they create. And I'm hesitant to say the word life, but, um, but certainly they're the entity, these other entities that we create that have these, this consciousness, it's not going to work if we try to oppress that, oppress it. Right. right. It will fight against us because it's going to be smarter than us. Yeah. Singularity. Here it comes. Right on. Game. Let's play a game. All right. So Laurel, do, do your thing. Okay. So every week here on the Midnight Myth Podcast, we do like to play a little game just to uh, get you guys into some audience participation and lighten some of the energy here in the room. We're drinking wine. Uh, so please play along at home. If you like, uh, tweet your responses to us at uh, the midnight myth on Twitter. That's at the midnight myth or, uh, on Facebook. If you just search the midnight myth podcast, you'll find us there on Facebook. Drop us a line on the website, www.midnightmyth.com. Oh, and before we go into the game too, um, we've been keeping a regular blog 
So if you guys like the webs or like the podcast, go to the website, read the blog. Yeah, check it out. We go a little bit deeper and we explore some of the historical or philosophical or, you know, just pop culture implications of what we're talking about with a little more uh a little more detail. Yeah, and sometimes we just do things like why is Batman so popular? Why me, is Batman so popular? Let me just write about that. Sometimes we yeah. do that too. Yeah, so anyway, check it to out. The game. Anyway, so this game, uh, since we ended in a place of uh, robots revolting against humans because we've been oppressing them uh, and talking about the singularity, we are playing a game that is uh, pretty singular, I would say. Ooh. Uh, so here is the circumstance. Again, please respond with your, uh, your answers to this. It's two sides, so pick your side and tell us why. Okay. We've reached the singularity, which means we now are no longer in control of the rate at which technology advances. Technology is now in the control, right? Yeah. Technology now is conscious. It's conscious. Okay. So you only have two options. You merge with the technology you become a cyborg, you go Terminator, technology becomes your master, you and technology are one, so that's one choice. The other choice is you go off the grid, you go native, you move to an island and you forswear all technology and you live off the land. Derek, would you like to start us off? Yeah, and I'm just going to say this, that... uh this was a tough one because I like both options. Me too. Um, but I'm going to go with technology. And the reason that I'm going to go with technology is that eventually you're going to encounter the superior intellectual, physical, whatever. Well, when technology reaches the point where it is physically, intellectually superior to humanity... You know, what leads to humanity's oppression in there is saying, no, 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 we're still free. In reality, let's partner. I don't want to be a battery in the matrix. Like, I don't want to be your energy source. But whatever consciousness that I have, whatever, whatever talent that I have, well, now we're in this next phase of human evolution that I think will ultimately lead to just being pure energy. Oh yeah, that's nice. Right. So the step step one be these like like meat sacks that we are. Step two, invent machines that can think and bond with them. Step three, be pure energy in the universe. That's right? amazing. So you're so, buying like fully into 2001: A Space Odyssey as like a roadmap for where you're going. Absolutely. That sure. So and I think in this way we don't have to look at that as the loss of the self. It, it's more the idea that we've been a collective self this whole time. Now let's merge this collective self mm. into this technological, uh, and it's the only chance of an actual utopia on Earth. At least I'm going to argue with this now. Yeah. I don't know if I believe that all the time, but right now I'm going to say the only chance for Earth to be a place of peace and prosperity with equitable resources for all well, that, the only way that'll happen is if we relinquish control to something that's not greedy and that we work in tandem with that to, to get to the next phase of evolution. It sounds like you're the president in this scenario because <laughs> you're assuming that everybody's going with you and nobody's going to actually declare war against the machines. 
Yeah, but it doesn't have to be a war. Right. Right. So it doesn't have to be that. Like, right. But you're assuming that nobody says, let's go to war. You know, if you say, hey, let's go to war, this is this is evil. We'd like to think that before we even got to this point, we're like, hey, you know, because so the choices are, oh, wow, there's another species called technology now. And right. it can think we're going to battle each other to the death. And to the victor goes the spoilers. Okay, that's one scenario. Well, that scenario is fucking stupid and it sucks. Yeah. Right? The other scenario is, well, what are we going to do together? Yeah. Right? That's just, I, I, I agree. It's just very optimistic about the rest of the people on your planet. I didn't know. I, listen, I don't know if anyone's going to go with me right. on this journey. But I think ultimately it all goes one way, which and the progress only goes one way. Yeah. Evolution only goes one way, and that's forward. Time only goes one way. So you got to go with the time. I think that's great. I think that's a really great argument for uh, going Terminator. Uh, as you can tell, uh, Derek chose one side, so I chose the other. I'm choosing to go off the grid and go native uh, and just totally remove all technology from my life. I go and start a new society on some remote desert island. Wait, are you going to a new society or new society? Society. Um, yeah, so I was attracted to this option because I feel a great connection to nature and to the environment, assuming there is still an environment at this point in our future and there are still islands that are not underwater. I assume, but, let's assume. But I'm I'm kind of excited and like all about the idea of like, being a primitive kind of, uh, you know, having no machines whatsoever and, you know, having new folklore and having new, uh, new rituals about how to live life and how to, uh, how to cultivate the land that you live on. Uh, and there's something just really exciting to me about the idea of like, just totally withdrawing from, uh, from the world I'm in now and, just becoming one with nature and, you know, being a, a swamp witch. Yeah. I mean, honestly, that I, I feel that same sort of romantic pull to the pull rather to the simplicity yeah. of being living in a, in a, a simpler society and that's more collectivist. Uh, but, you know, and so I hear that, like I could go nativist too. Sure. Yeah, for the for the exact same reason, except I don't necessarily see myself as a swamp witch. I'm such a swamp witch at heart. I kind of see myself more as like the dude chopping firewood. That's cool. Yeah. That's cool. I would be like burning sage and like singing like creepy little songs and Well you know, everybody would be warning their children to stay away from me. Yeah. Awesome. Okay. Well, I'll keep you warm because I'll just chop the firewood. I think we should both go native. Let's just actually do this, not as part of the game, like next week. No. Veto. Well, this went well. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not doing that. I All love, right, ladies I, and gentlemen, thank you so much for playing along with us and for listening. Uh, if you enjoy what you're hearing here on the Midnight Myth podcast or on our YouTube channel, please drop us a line. Uh, we would love a review on iTunes. It really helps us get out there or just a rating if you have the time. Tell your friends Tell your enemies, tell a stranger. Tell the smart machine that's doing all the work for you. Yeah, and then stop it. And uh, until next time, be kind. Mm-hmm.
be kind.